0: hard as a newsreading member of the public to digest all of this unless there is some cohesive framework for it. Because if it's just one crazy scandal after another, it's just hard to keep track of. And that is a way that the public can be almost disarmed.
1: And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to a podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat a full-time populist like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40 this morning, I had a sort of offbeat thought, and I thought I'd share it with you all. You know, for a long time, we assume that democracy is stable once it's affluent. And I have worried aloud on this podcast about whether that is in fact true. Whether it might not be the case that as the incomes of a lot of citizens stagnate, they become really angry at the political system and start to challenge it in real ways. Now, today I thought, if that is true, then perhaps democracy is not an endpoint. It's not the endpoint of human development. It's not what we eventually get to and then we just stay in it. It's a phase. Liberal democracy might be the kind of political system that's the correlate of the moment in economic development when you have rapid enough economic growth to have rapidly improving living standards for average people. And if that is true, then we could see liberal democracy become more and more embattled in North America and Western Europe over the next decades and move. At least temporarily to other parts of the world. Perhaps 35 years from now, liberal democracy will be on the decline in North America and Western Europe, but will actually be on the rise in societies that are more optimistic, but have improved those kinds of changes in living standards in big parts of Asia, in parts of Africa, perhaps in parts of Latin America. As I said, this is not a prediction, don't hold me to it. This is a sort of offbeat thought, but it's just an interesting way of decentering. Uh, Of challenging the kind of terms and the kind of determinism with which we normally think uh, about the future of our political systems. I'm thrilled to be joined in the studio today by Ian Basson. Ian is a lawyer who's had a lot of high profile, lawyerly political positions. He was the associate White House counsel to President Barack Obama, responsible really for making sure that all of the political appointees stuck within the ethics guidelines and didn't abuse the power in any kind of way, a job that he took really seriously and that informed our conversation when we sat down together today. But he's also since gone on to found really one of the most admirable and important organizations thinking and acting on opposing authoritarianism tendencies from the Trump administration. It's called United to Protect Democracy. I've been advising them a little bit informally from the start. And Ian and I have had many conversations about what you can actually do. And so that informs our conversation as well. I think, you know, I I try to be practical on this podcast. Uh, I sometimes fail. I think this conversation is going to lead you with, with lots of ideas about what we collectively and you personally can actually do to beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump. So I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Ian, it's a pleasure to have you in the studio here today.
0: Uh, It's so nice to be here, Yasha.
1: Listen, so before we jump into what's been going on with Donald Trump and the broader populist threat and what to do about all of those, I mean, you have experience working in the government trying to make sure that nobody in the administration does all the kinds of things we're now seeing, right? Trying to make sure that people actually play by the rules, that justice isn't just done, but seen to be done, that people don't end up in any ethical models. What was that job and what does that actually entail? What kind of compliance procedures do you have to have to make sure that you end up with a really clean administration? You know, when
0: we came into the White House in 2009, one of the mandates that President Obama gave to the lawyers in the White House Counsel's office, but really to the the whole staff, was that before we could even start doing the substantive work that many people came into the administration to do, whether that be around the environment or healthcare or financial policy, we had to restore the public's trust and faith that government was working in their interests, and that that really was sort of the primary foundation before you could actually go out there and do the substantive policy mm-hmm. work. So. I came into the White House on day one after the inauguration with three binders in my office that had in them memos that White House counsels had issued to White House staff going back to the Eisenhower administration. Wow. yeah. And when you go through those, what you realize as a lawyer in the White House is that so many of the rules that govern the behavior of executive officials are not legally binding. Hmm. They're customary. They're normative. We would typically be asked questions about, is it okay for me to do this or can I do that? And What's a
1: good example of that?
0: So one of the examples that, that we at Protect Democracy actually it was the first thing we did when we formed the organization Protect Democracy are the rules governing contacts between the White House and the Department of Justice, mm. uh, right? In
1: our that didn't end up being relevant to Donald Trump's presidency <laughs> so
0: at all. It's amazing. We, we put out that memo on the history of those rules in early March, uh, before anything had happened yeah, about uh, yeah. Jim Comey or otherwise, and you know it turned out that they've become kind of the document that reporters go back to over and over again and say of these rules been and, and just how badly are they being broken right now
1: so for example what is sort of in the realm of something that you know in the heat of a moment might seem perfectly fine to somebody working in the white house and you had to sort of say well no actually here's a president here's why it's important not to break that you might not have any bad intentions but This is the kind of bad thing that could happen if you're not aware of them.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, if you imagine White House staff are meeting with members of the public all the time, right? Part of the constitution, petition your government for redress of grievances. So a company would come in and meet with officials in the White House and say, look, we have concerns about X, Y, and Z. And also, we've applied for a waiver from the Environmental Protection Agency in order to build this factory next to this waterway. And we're still waiting on that waiver. Mm -hmm. Can you help us get it through? Right. Right, right, And the instinct of a good public servant is to say, well, you're my constituent. Let me see what I can do. Let me call the EPA. Right. Now, we had very strict rules saying, no, 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 don't do that for this reason there are a lot of things the federal government does in terms of administering federal law that are are supposed to be run through an independent process where facts are applied to law and even-handed decisions are made not based on someone's political connections, partisan loyalty, and so we intercepted, we made sure that White House staff knew you cannot call the EPA and ask about that. You come to the council's office um, and we will help guide a process that makes sure the EPA does not feel that the White House is pressuring them to make a certain decision on a certain application.
1: Now, that requires real attention to how an action might be misread, what the downstream consequences might be, how somebody might be playing you. Do you have the impression of that's going on in the White House at the moment?
0: I mean, this is the really scary thing. I mean, in the days after the election, having done this work for many years, um, where you were sort of enforcing these norms, the fear dawned on both me and others who'd served. What happens if you get an administration that doesn't care about following the norms and precedents that have made us the world's longest living healthy democracy. It really becomes not just an issue of an individual scandal, it becomes a core threat to the notion of a liberal democratic constitutional government. That's what motivated us to start an organization, was to say, how do we make sure that this very illiberal and kind of autocratic trend in our politics that's exhibited by the man currently in the White House doesn't fundamentally alter and undermine our democracy.
1: One of the striking things when I compare what you're talking about and the way that the Obama White House went about this, what we're seeing right now, is that even if you give Trump the greatest benefit of a doubt, beyond reasonable measure, right, and say that he's really not self-interested at all, that he's a good public servant, he just wants to make America great again, you know, somebody like Obama, who was very careful in who he hired and so on, realized that he needs to pay a lot of attention to all of these things because you have a staff of thousands of people and what they do reflects on you. And no matter how good your intentions are, you must live in fear every day in that office of what some guy who you spend five minutes a week with ends up doing that can reflect really badly on you. It's obvious that in the current White House, that thought hasn't Trust anybody's mind. They're happy for everybody to go and violate guidelines and so on and so forth. And that to me is a really striking aspect of what we're seeing play out there at the moment.
0: One important thing though, to remember is it's not just what the Obama administration did. You know, I, I'm proud to have served in that. I think we did a particularly good job of it. But it, it was not unique to Democrats or Obama. I mean, this is what presidents have done going back decades, perhaps yep. with yep. the with the exception in modern times of Richard Nixon. But, you know, this is the Reagan administration, the two Bush administrations, you know, this is how White Houses and presidents have operated with a, with a care and concern for these sorts of restrictions. I mean, here's one way to think about how Trump is fundamentally different from these prior presidents. Most presidents bristle to some extent when they encounter restrictions on their power. Right, But they do have a fundamental respect for the notion that those checks and balances are part of the system. And if you were to totalize... They up- might
1: not like this particular check right now... But they agree that there should be checks. There should be a that. check.
0: And, and over the course of an administration, there are times when they say, you know what, I think I want to push the limits on that check, or I think I want to not push the limits on this one. You end up with a, a number of instances on both sides of the ledger. What's scary about this particular administration is every single instance is on one side of the ledger. This is a president and, frankly, a political movement that he's building up behind him that any time it runs into any sort of constraint on his power, his instinct is to get rid of it. If that means firing the FBI director, so be it. Whatever the restraint if that means that voters could check him, the answer is to say that there's millions of illegal voters. And we should be very concerned about what that looks like come election time.
1: Yeah. By the way, I have been seriously worried about that over the last weeks, you know, because I had this conversation about 2016 and what he would have likely done if he had lost. And I think, Best case scenario, he would have essentially said, well, I don't really accept the outcome of the election and sort of riled people up a little bit against the system that would have slowly died down. But that looks very different if you're in office. And I think if it's a landslide against him, then you know perhaps there's not much he can do. But if it's a really narrow vote that comes down to account in a couple of states, I wonder what that's gonna look like in 2020.
0: Yeah, I mean, to some extent, we're in such uncharted territory for the United States, but it's not uncharted territory internationally, right? We should disclose to listeners that we've come to you and asked for some expertise on kind of how this looks overseas because we have seen in the 21st century this new form of autocrat. People think back to the 20th century autocrats, right? And those were people, fascist, totalitarian governments in early 20th century Germany. Those were non-democracies, right? people who basically destroyed democracies to the point they just became dictatorships. In the 21st century, it's something that looks very different, right? It's these autocrats in places like Poland and Hungary, Thailand, Venezuela, Russia, where the autocrat tries to maintain at least the appearance and semblance of democracy. On the outside, multiple political parties, regular elections, there's media outlets that are not owned by the state, but they pull at the threads of the fabric of the democracy in such a way that at the end of the day, they rendered a democracy in name only. And so two things that are benefiting us, one is we have the roadmap of how these autocrats have done it in other countries, so we can look to what we should expect, and we have stronger traditions, constitutional protections in this country that should provide us a degree of protection that may not have existed overseas, but we have to use it as a public, right? We have to to stand together and really take advantage of those opportunities that we have, because Our democracy is not protected unless we step up and do it.
1: And one thing that we both agree on is the idea that the constitution cannot defend itself. Correct. The constitution gives all of us as the general public and certainly gives congressmen and senators and other branches of government the tools they need to defend democracy. But ultimately, whether we're going to succeed in defending democracy depends on whether people are able and have the courage to actually use them. Now, you know, I say at the beginning of every episode that this is a space where we search for the ideas, policies, and strategies to beat a town populist like Donald Trump. And, you know, most of the time we end up talking about ideas and policies. Most of the time, these conversations end up really focusing on trying to figure out what are the big structural drivers of populism and what kind of change in public policy do we need in order to actually counteract them. Now, you're somebody who's fought very, very carefully and started to take action in some very impressive ways on some of the strategies to beat over the town populace, particularly in the short run. And we've been having this conversation going back, coming up to a year now, um, about what it is that we can do. So starting beyond your own organization, what are the strategies? What can people actually do to defend the most basic liberal democratic rules, but also some of those norms we've been talking about? Yeah, I mean, the good news is that our
0: democracy does still work, right? Uh, And we got evidence of this very early on when this administration started. If you'll remember, there was a story during the transition about Congress trying to gut the Office of Congressional Ethics. And the New York Times very quickly got a story on the front page of the newspaper that Congress was trying to do this, that Trump was encouraging them to do that. And the American people, in a unique moment of responding sort of en masse to an arcane procedural change that (laughs) Congress would make called their members and said, absolutely not. And, and And the American public killed that proposal very quickly. So that was an encouraging sign that people participating can and does still work. And the key is making sure that that remains the case for as long as possible. A couple of things that we're doing, I'll make some sort of plugs for ways that people can participate. We actually just filed a lawsuit last week against the White House and the pence kobach voter quote-unquote integrity commission, because that commission went out and collected all of this data on voters from all 50 states without following certain, again, arcane federal procedures for how you're supposed to do that. But those procedures are there to allow people to comment and object in advance if they feel what the government is doing is either too burdensome on the public, might not safeguard their information. Mm. This morning, we filed a preliminary injunction in court to shut down the commission's ability to do that. Now, here's where it's important where people can participate is, if the court sides with us, what it will do is it will tell the commission, you have to destroy all the data you've collected, and before you can collect any more data, you have to tell the American public what you plan to do with it, and give the American public an opportunity to comment and respond as to whether they're okay with that. Now, we need to build up a massive army of people ready to say, no. And so, if okay with you, I'll plug it right now. Please, right? Uh, Come to protectdemocracy.org. Sign up there so we can let you know when that moment happens, because it is going to be a moment where people can stand up and say no to an assault on our democracy.
1: So, obviously, public participation and public pressure is one of the ways in which we've really been able to check the Trump presidency so far, right? It's true around things like the travel ban. And it's true around issues, which I should emphasize, I don't think are issues of the survival of liberal democracy, but are important policy issues like healthcare reform. But I sometimes wonder whether that in itself is the survival of an older political norm, right? Somehow congressmen still care about what the constituents think. When there's huge public outcry to something, so far the administration has actually backtracked on some core things. No, we're only a year into this, and I wonder whether at a certain point, the administration starts being more resistant to this. Start saying, you know what, even if millions of people around the country say, we do comment on this, and we don't think that our data should be collected in this way, they'll say, well, this is helpful to us for winning our re-election, and we're just going to run roughshod over that. Yeah, and
0: and I think that that's where some of the other strategies have to come into play, which is looking to the other institutions that have historically been checks on a runaway executive. Congress is supposed to have been a check on a runaway Mm -hmm. executive, obviously they are falling down on the job in a pretty horrible way right now, but the courts are still there. And so it's important that we use the courts in the way they've been intended, which is as a backstop to protect our rights and limit the ability of an executive to go beyond what his or her powers are. So an example there, you know, the president issued this pardon to Sheriff Joe Arpaio in Arizona. We've consulted with a a scholar who's been studying Hungary and Poland, and what she pointed out to us was what these autocrats will do is they will find a legal power that they have that has very limited checks on it, and then they will exploit it and use it far beyond the way it was ever intended, in ways they're really threatening. And this was an example of that, right? This is the president using the pardon power to essentially say to a law enforcement officer, Even though you've been found to have violated people's individual rights, and the court has told you to stop, and you've ignored it, and the court has held you in contempt, I'm going to say it's okay, and I'm going to absolve you of that contempt. Now, that's really dangerous, because if you think about what that would allow the president to do if it were taken to its logical extreme, he would essentially be able to say to any executive or state official, go out there and violate people's rights, and if they or a court try to stop you, I'll make sure it's okay. Now, if that were allowed to stand, it would essentially render our constitutional rights empty letters. You wouldn't be able to go and enforce them. So we went into the court in Arizona that was considering the Arpaio pardon and argued to them that in fact it was unconstitutional. It went beyond the president's pardon power because it eviscerated the power of the courts. We're still litigating that case because in addition to sort of public outcry, as you suggest, we need to take advantage of the other branches and the other checks that can serve to constrain an out-of-control executive.
1: I want to take a step back here and actually think about this in a broader sense, right? I mean, so you've been talking about two quite different forms of engagement. One is sort of, just the mass voice of a people expressing itself in this way that's sort of a little odd and mysterious, right? I mean, like everybody goes to the website of his commission and says, no, we object to this. And somehow by just the volume of response, we trust that it does something. Or we all come out in the streets and just our bodies in the streets are going to demonstrate that Donald Trump does not speak for the people, that there are people who are really um, opposed to some of the things he, he does. And that's going to make the executive change political direction in some kind of way. Right. And the mechanism of that has never been entirely clear to me, but it has historically been effective in lots of circumstances. Right, The other is a much more elite-driven process. It's lawyers flying to Arizona to argue in front of a court why it is that a judge should limit the authority of a president to act in this particular circumstance. What's your sort of broader theory of change here? I mean, do you think that one is more important than the other, that they work together? I mean, is this ultimately, standing up to Donald Trump, ultimately a game of political elites and the point is to persuade elites to finally stand up to him? Or is it really a question of mass opposition and, and, and mass protests and so on?
0: It's really both and, right? And you think back to the great moments of American values succeeding against opposition and all odds. And it was a combination of these two things. And think back to Brown versus Board of Education, right? This is a 50 to 60 year struggle from when the Supreme Court uh, you know, upholds separate but equal to when the Supreme Court ultimately changes course and strikes it down. And it was Thurgood Marshall and Charles Hamilton Houston laying out a litigation strategy through the courts that was going to take many, many years to take effect. And at the same time, there being a movement on the ground that helped to shift American public perception and help really frame the context in which the court heard that case. There's a term talking really wonky in sort of the constitutional sense called popular constitutionalism, which is this idea that The Constitution doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? It exists as part of a vibrant democratic society and obviously the way the Constitution has stayed vibrant over many centuries is that presidents elected by the public appoint Supreme Court justices. Those justices are screened and confirmed by the Senate, also elected by the public. That means that there's a way, attenuated, but a way for public sentiment to influence who's on our courts and sort of what the Constitution ultimately says. And so in this moment of constitutional challenge and crisis, it really does Require both the strategy of litigation, legal strategy, Mm -hmm. lawyers going into court, the public participating with those people, stepping up and doing things, and even what we saw—the spontaneous outburst of people running to Dulles and JFK to essentially, you know, sort of express their opposition to some steps that are being taken by the government. It's unfortunate right now that actually the example that almost jumps to mind most immediately in terms of how the public can restrain an autocrat doesn't come from America. It comes from Poland. Earlier this year, the Polish governing party uh, tried to take greater control over the independent judiciary. And the Polish public marched in the street en masse. And that marching created
1: the the necessary momentum to pause the executive from seizing that court power. Um, and, and that's a good example, right, of a mix between popular protest and elite players. I mean, actually, the way specifically in which it stopped part of a reform, and it looks unfortunately like the government is reintroducing parts of it and so on, but did sort of at least hold Poland's descent into an electoral dictatorship for a little while. So Poland has a parliamentary system in which, you know, the most important decisions are taken by parliament which is dominated by the populists, but they have to be signed off by a president who has largely ceremonial powers. But he does have to sign laws in order for them to go into effect. So it's a kind of last check. It gives him a veto power, which traditionally is very rarely exercised, but that does survive and gives him some amount of influence in moments of crisis. And even though that president has been aligned with a populist for the past years, was elected on the populist wave a couple of years ago, when he saw that mass protest, he decided not to sign the most extreme form of a judiciary bill. And so I agree with you that it has to be a mixture between popular pressure and elite actors. And the Polish case is a great example. It's all of those people coming out in the streets, showing the outrage that moved the president to say, well, you know what, I'm not gonna sign this bill. But of course, that also makes it more difficult to know what that last saving grace might be in a country in which a presidency is already occupied by a populist. One of the things that's been haunting me about the legal strategies, which seem to me to have been, you know, alongside just sort of sheer investigative journalism, one of the real bright spots of this past year, one of the ways in which we've been very effective at fighting back against Trump, what if he starts to ignore the courts? And what happens at the point at which he says, you know what, um, this court is telling me that I can't ban people from entering the country of a certain description. I'm going to just keep publishing executive orders that say that I can and I'm going to ask the people at Dallas and at JFK to obey me and if a court decides to hold them in contempt, I'm going to pardon them. If a court decides to hold me in contempt, I'm going to pardon myself. What happens then?
0: Yeah, and it's a real concern and threat because if we learn from the models overseas, we're already seeing from the president the early stages that would lead to something like that we are working on exactly this question we view the question in two parts one is how do you prevent that moment from ever coming to pass like let's you know, take our sounds like the preferred
1: a, option. The preferred <laughs> option,
0: right? But then, of course, what is the response if it were to happen? But in doing that, what we're trying to do is actually look at the models from overseas when uh, executives have tried to undermine courts. And you look at places like Argentina where the executive there would say disparaging things about the judiciary in order to lead the public to distrust the judiciary so that then when the president tries to strip the judiciary of jurisdiction or do other things to undermine it, they do so with the backing of public support. you know, is eerily reminiscent of what we are seeing here with the president making statements that, well, I'm trying to protect the country. And if these, you know, people in black robes don't want to allow me to do that, then the blood's going to be on their hands, right? That's laying the groundwork for being able to say, I'm going to ignore the courts and and have his sort of Andrew Jackson moment. So I think the first thing that we- And
1: that, by the way, I mean, just to go on another of my little excursions I love to have on this podcast. So this makes me wonder about something that I've been trying to struggle with for the last month. So- When you came into the studio a little while ago, Ian, you mentioned that today as we're recording this, Trump has just tweeted that perhaps we should just revoke the broadcasting license of NBC. You know, I have two responses to this. The first is that my alarm bells just go off, you know, deafeningly, right? I mean, this is the definition of what authoritarian populists have done in various countries to attack the media, attack the media, attack the media, to prepare the ground to eventually close him down, to attack, as you were saying, the courts. In Argentina, was done, Berlusconi did that in Italy all of the time. The Judges are partisan, they're lazy, you know, we need to just reform all of it, abolish all of it, in order to then make sure that he can't be charged for corruption and so on, right? But at the same time, I look at these tweets and I'm just like, you know, we should we should just forget about these tweets, right? I mean, he tweets all of the time. And so far, he hasn't actually acted on most of the tweets. And, you know, perhaps we should just focus on what he actually does rather than what he says, perhaps for distractions, perhaps for even strategic distractions. And so I think we're in this sort of epistemological problem where we don't know whether the tweets are just a big sideshow and a distraction and he's never going to actually walk the talk or whether they wind up being really the preparing acts for starting to take some of those steps. And I don't know know, what to think about that. Yeah, I mean, look, so
0: far, if we were to use existing data points as a reference he has tended to follow through on the things that he has said that he is going to do, even the ones that seem so outlandish that most of the sort of chattering class had said, oh, well, he's not really serious about that. Think about the wall during the campaign. Think about the Muslim ban. I mean, when he proposed those things during the campaign, most people dismiss them as campaign rhetoric, but not serious proposals.
1: Right, take him seriously, but not literally.
0: Yeah, take him both literally and seriously because he's pushing all of those things. So I think, you know, certainly from an organization like Protect Democracies where we form to prevent the worst case scenario, we would love to overestimate the threat. That would be a wonderful
1: outcome. What we are not gonna do is underestimate the threat. Which by the way is a really important point, right? I mean, I think there's two different instincts that I have. One as a political scientist and one as somebody who cares about the survival of liberal democracy. And one is to be very, very dispassionate and just say, well, what are the different likelihoods and so on. And the others who say, "Well, what are the effects of getting those likelihoods wrong?" And I think the cost of underestimating the threat to our liberal democracy is much, much bigger than the cost of overestimating it. And that's a background fact that we should always remember.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you look back on history, there are not many people who are seen as historical goats because they overestimated a threat, but there's countless people in the pantheon of historical goats because they underestimated. Well,
1: ironically, them. the famous person who's remembered as you know being alarmist and so on is Cassandra. And the thing that people miss about Cassandra is that she turned out to be right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yes. Just because you're paranoid
0: don't mean they're not after (laughs) you. (laughs) Exactly. You know, I I think, look, an informed citizenry is a tyrant's worst enemy. You know, so going back to the question of what can we do to preempt the notion that he might ignore the courts or that he might try to take away a broadcast license, I think it is important for all of us. And this is a role for the media, but it's a role for all of us who are listening to this podcast. who are clearly engaged citizens talking to friends and neighbors is to really see this for what it is and call it out. And what I mean by that is this. You could look at everything that's happened over the last year, and I think this is typically how it's been presented in the news, as a set of disparate scandals, right? One day there's people using you know, charter jets, the next day he's firing an FBI director, the next day he's tweeting about uh, shutting down broadcast licenses, but they're each presented as its own independent thing. And I think there's a danger in allowing that to happen, because what will Ultimately, I think protect us is being able to see all of these things as connected in one narrative of this is somebody who is testing the fundamental basis of liberal democracy and doing so from the direction of an autocrat like we have seen overseas. I think that's both important in order to allow us to prevent the blueprint from actually playing out. It's also important because it's hard as a news reading member of the public to digest all of this unless there is some cohesive framework for it. Because if it's just one crazy scandal after another, it's just hard to keep track of. And that is a way that the public can be almost disarmed mm. from being able to respond, right? It's, it's this notion of if you're standing on a bed of nails, you don't notice any one of them, right? Um, and we need to turn this into one nail again. And the one nail is this is an autocratic threat to our democracy.
1: So what do we do about it? You are starting to say that, but what is the preferred way of resisting it? And what is the last resort way of resisting it?
0: Yeah, when, when you think about the, the judge's one, I mean, the first thing is, you know, when I think it was the attorney general who mocked the judge in the Ninth Circuit who stayed the travel ban by saying, why does Hawaii even get to weigh in on this, right? Mm. And most of the coverage of that said, in almost a snarky way, Mr. Attorney General, Hawaii is a state. That coverage, I don't think, is ultimately that helpful, right? Because it doesn't name the problem. And one of the things that we're working on is trying to work with the media so that we can actually say when the president says X, Y, Z about this judge, this is a prelude to undermining the judiciary so that we can start to get people calling into Congress, hold hearings in the judiciary committee, let's get lawyers and bar committees speaking up to their senators. Some great lawyer in Georgia organized 600 lawyers in Georgia to write to the two Georgia senators to say, you need to take a stand against these assaults on the independent judiciary. Mm -hmm. So I think step one is let's call it for what it is, let's call it out. That is a way in which public pressure can sort of put some brakes because you'll actually get members of Congress saying, you know what, we're concerned about this and doing their job of being a check on the executive. In the long run, if there is a Jackson moment, then you start to have to get pretty creative about what happens when John Roberts, the chief justice... Orders the U.S. Marshal Service to do something. The Marshals yeah. are the service that reports to the the judges and enforces judicial orders. And the Attorney General tells the U.S. Marshal Service, "No, don't do that." What does the Marshal Service well, do? Or
1: what happens if judges order the U.S. Marshal Service to do something, and Trump orders the National Guard or the military to do the other thing? And right. obviously, the Marshal Service would always lose out in that kind of thing. I mean, this is this sounds utterly absurd, but we've had a situation in a in a place where we could never imagine that Barcelona of different state orders facing each other violently in the streets. A few weeks ago, you ended up having the national police literally coming to fights in the streets with the Catalonian firemen, right? So it's not unimaginable that you could wind up in those kinds of things. And the point is that whatever little weapons the judicial system has in terms of its enforcement mechanisms is obviously vastly outmatched by the other sides of American state power. So in the end, this is the ultimate norm that the executive defers to the judiciary.
0: Well, in the end of the day, and this may sound sort of idealistic, but I also think it's accurate. At the end of the day, when there's conflicting orders coming down to whether it be the the director of the U.S. Marshals Service or a confrontation between the U.S. Marshals Service and National Guard, and let's just pause, unbelievable that we're actually having this conversation in the United States in 2017, but it is not unthinkable that we need to have this conversation. We need to have this conversation.
1: I I remember the first time that I felt like I wasn't the most pessimistic person in the room in 2016, besides sort of shouted and shouted about the threat of populism and the possibility that Trump might win. Not that I thought it was likely to win, but I thought it was a real possibility that he would, was when after the debate in which he said he'd leave his listeners in suspense about the outcome of the election, a very sober-minded, very smart friend of mine said, So, what do you think the likelihood of civil war in the United States in the coming years is? And I just I, I remember just being so shaken up by that question because I had never in my life considered it. And suddenly it seemed, not likely, by any stretch of imagination, but something that one should think about. Yeah. And and I
0: think what will stand in the way of getting there is every one of those members of either the Marshal Service or the National Guard are Americans. They're human beings. And they're making judgments. And just in the way that Mubarak soldiers in Tahrir Square, thugs in Tahrir Square, ultimately decided, you know what? I'm going to protect the protesters, right? Or the Turkish military, sort of, when the coup was attempted, decided, you know what? I'm going to try to protect some civilians on the ground. These people are going to make decisions too. And I think the key is they're going to make that decision not in a vacuum, but in the context of what legal arguments are broadly accepted, what political arguments are broadly accepted, what the American public seem to want. And so the work for all of us, and particularly organizations like ours that Protect Democracy to do right now, is to begin laying the arguments for them about what their obligations are in that moment, and see if there's public support for those. So that if, at the end of the day, the marshal service is told by the attorney general to do one thing and the chief justice to do another. In advance, we've helped the the head of the Marshal Service understand, what are your obligations under the Constitution so they can make a judgment? And this actually sort of brings up a project that you know we have you to really thank for kind of helping to conceive, which is a project you've covered on the good fight before called Uphold the Oath. Um, and the idea behind Uphold the Oath, well, there's two ideas behind it. One idea behind Uphold the Oath is that at the end of the day, our... Government officials, our civil servants, our political appointees, they don't owe loyalty to the president. They owe loyalty to a set of ideas, the Constitution, you've written about this in Slate. and taking the step of asking civil servants to reaffirm that commitment, to reaffirm the oath of office that they've taken. And and we've encouraged civil servants to record their oath of office into their camera phone and send it in to upholdtheoath.org so that you can actually make sure that when that moment comes, the question that anyone is asking is, what is my true obligation to protect the Constitution of the United States? The second motivation behind uphold the oath is, We've asked experts like you, experts who've studied autocracies rising in other countries, what is the thing that separates countries that survive these challenges from those that don't? And the answer we've been given repeatedly is there's a moment when the average person licks their thumb and sticks it in the wind to see which way the wind is blowing. And if everybody's running out to Dulles and JFK to protest, if your fellow civil servants are standing up for the constitution you will too. But if your neighbors are closing their window shades and locking their doors and not talking about politics, you're really in trouble. And creating the environment in which we are the former and not the latter is a responsibility on all of
1: us. I, and this, by the way, is one of the ways in which that linkage between popular protest and mass action on the one side and elite decisions on the other side has become more clear to me just over the course of our conversation. That um, people... In moments of decision, and that can be Supreme Court Justice, or it can be a member of a marshal service. It can be an immigration officer at IAD. When they make their decisions, they face a collective action problem, right? if They're the only person who sticks up for the Constitution, who sticks up for what's right. They're likely to be punished, to lose their job, possibly to go to jail, depending on how far along the slide towards autocracy you are. Whereas if they think that they're going to be part of a big group of people, it's not just them, but it's every other person in the unit of a marshal service. Not just them, but it's all the other immigration officers at IAD who are going to say, well, respectfully, Mr. President, I, I see your order, but actually I have countervailing orders from the court. And my understanding of my constitutional obligations is that I follow what the court tells me. And you have everybody else doing that at the same time. Then you're going to do the right thing. And that's a question of social atmosphere, of public opinion. And there's things we can do to influence those. And I agree, I mean, I've talked it up before in this podcast for good reason, uphold the oath is is both really important in its own right and is a great example of how to create that. It's asking civil servants in a non-political way to re-record themselves publicly saying, I'm going to stand up for the constitution. I'm going to do what my oath of office requires me to do. It's not to say I'm against Trump. It's not to say I have this policy or politics or that politics. It's just to say my duty as an American and particularly as a federal bureaucrat, a federal employee, civil servant is to say, my primary obligation is to the constitution and I'm going to act on that. And and seeing lots of other people being willing to do that might make a real difference at that stage. So summarizing sort of this conversation, I don't leave listeners of a good fight with a sense of how to go and fight quite often enough. So, you know, I'm going to plug this so you don't have to. I mean, if you are a civil servant, do go and upload a video of yourself retaking the oath of office to upholdtheoath.org if you have some money to spare. I know that Christmas and the New Year is coming up and that's when people traditionally do donations. Do you consider donating to United to Protect Democracy? Um, to me, it's really been absolutely one of the most impressive organizations forming over the past year to do the right thing. But what can people do concretely in their lives? If you listen to this and, and, and you're feeling inspired by this conversation, do you want to say, you know what, okay, I was really engaged in this in January and February and when life came to me and I got busy and so on, but but actually, this is the moment in which I want to recommit some of my time to doing the right thing. Well, what do you think I should go out and do today, tomorrow, next week?
0: Look, I think still in this country, democracy works. Letting your member of Congress know how you feel on any of the things that the president is doing will help shift their behavior. And this is particularly important, not just in, in the traditionally blue states, but in the red states. As we learned this past weekend from Bob Corker, and this is reinforced by conversations that I've had with staff members of Republican senators and and House members, they know the threat that's posed by this presidency. They are constrained in some ways, and this is not an excuse, it's an explanation, from acting because their constituents are saying, no, offer him support they need to hear from members of the public that we're concerned. When we have a president who's threatening to shut down the broadcast license of one of the major news networks because he doesn't like their coverage, we are facing an existential crisis for American democracy. And if you want to do something today, pick up the phone, call your senator, your member, and say, I think the president is an affront to the constitution. I want you to stand against it and protect the constitution. I want Congress to reassert itself. And if you live in a blue state or blue area, Call a friend or family member that lives in a red one and urge them to do it. And if you need some help on how to explain some of the concerns, come to protectdemocracy.org. We've got a lot of information there. You can sign up for updates because I really do believe as much as this is a dangerous moment, I am an optimist. If we stand together, we will survive this moment,
1: but we can't do it sitting down. Ian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter, assemble a squad of cheerleaders, do a flash mock on the New York subway, spelling out The Good Fight with your 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, about 12. Uh, extras you need for this. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight@newamerica.org. Thank you for listening
0: to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.